Well, if you have your Bibles with you once again, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. The Old Testament book of Psalms. Last summer, we spent the summer working through the beginning of the book of Psalms, and we made it through the first 12, and we're going to do the same thing again uh, this summer, and so we're going to be looking at Psalm 13 this morning. There are uh, Psalms scripture journals up here, and those journals contain the text of scripture in the Psalm on one side and a place to take notes on the other side. And so if you didn't get one of those, uh, or if you weren't with us last summer and you would like one, there's some up here at the front, and if you want to come grab one real quick, uh, you will not interrupt me, so you feel welcome to do that. Uh, Don Whitney, in his book, Praying the Bible, says that there is a sigh for every soul in the Psalms. And that's true, and I think that you will find that very true in Psalm 13 today as we study this psalm together. So if you found your place in Psalm 13, I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, how long? And this is what the Word of God says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Every parent knows the feeling of dread that washes over them when only a few hours into a long trip cries of how much longer begin to erupt from the back of the minivan. Gretchen and I have had our share of those experiences, but one instance rises above all the others. Instead of hours, we were merely minutes into a 10-hour journey. And as we approached Wheeling Tunnel to leave the city... The first cry of how much longer trumpeted from the back seat. And at that moment, we knew we were in for a very long day. In Psalm 13, David, in the form of a lament, asks his own how long questions. This psalm serves as an honest expression of the emotions of the soul expressed through a heart that feels that God has forgotten him. Psalm 13 is an intensely personal psalm that begins in darkness and it ends in light. Lydia Brownback in her book, Sing a New Song, 
describes the importance of psalms of lament. And she writes, laments express perplexity, anguish, and even discouragement during times of overwhelming circumstances. Yet they also reflect the confident hope of those who trust their compassionate and faithful God. And the Psalms of Lament teach us that God welcomes boldness and honesty when we cry out to Him. We need not fear that He won't hear because He has promised to never turn away from those who truly seek Him. A lament, an honest and bold cry of pain to God, the only one who can calm the storm. While we don't know the setting for Psalm 13, we do know that this psalm, if you'll look at the heading of it in your Bible, is intended for the choir master. In other words, it is a song of praise that was to be sung in public worship. It means that this psalm was not written just to chronicle an experience in David's life. It was written for the purpose of instructing and encouraging other suffering believers who, like David, at one time or another, have felt abandoned by God. In other words, friends, this psalm was written for people like you and me. People who are weary of asking our own how long questions regarding a long-term illness, regarding financial troubles, regarding broken family relationships, regarding worry and heartbreak over children and grandchildren, regarding the problems and pressures at work that never seem to end. This psalm was written for those who like David feel like they cannot go on one moment longer. And in this psalm of lament, David's soul is dramatically transformed from perplexity to praise as he prays, casting his burdens on the Lord, bringing him from the depths of despair to the delight of love and worship in his God. So will you note with me this journey that David takes us through in this psalm? And see, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, David's pain. He writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The psalmist's words in verses 1 and 2 reveal the great anguish of his heart. They also reveal an intense desire for relief from his pain. Make no mistake about it, friends. David is depressed. He's weary in his soul. There is no joy in his daily living. And he feels as if his life is shrouded in complete darkness. But this is not an expression that is unique to David. All of us, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, at one time or another have found ourselves in a similar state as the psalmist. Charles Spurgeon in his classic work, The Treasury of David, notes this reality. And he writes, whenever you look into David's psalms, you will somewhere or other see yourself. 
You never get into a corner, but you find David in that corner. I think that I was never so low that I could not find that David was even lower. And I never climbed so high that I could not find that David was even up above me. Oh, yes, friends, every single one of us can find ourselves in this psalm. And in his discouragement, David feels that his suffering will never come to an end. And he sees no way forward in his life. He's surrounded by his enemies. He's facing imminent death. And he repeats the same rhetorical question to God in verses 1 and 2 four times. Do you see it? How long? And this is the sufferer's question. It is the question that plagues every sufferer. For we can often endure the most uncomfortable of situations, like a dreaded dental procedure, if we know how long it's going to last. But our difficulties become unbearable, like the grinding of worn brake pads on our car when there's no end in sight. And David feels in verses 1 and 2 that there is no end in sight for his pain. One commentator described the weight of these verses saying, we can usually stand under short, sharp trials, but long-term trials grind us down over time. Dale Ralph Davis in his book, Slogging Along in the Paths of Righteousness, says, the danger in our suffering is not that we will blow out, but that we will wear out. We go on in our troubles far longer than we think the mercy of God can keep us. And this is David. At the height of his pain, at the height of his suffering, feeling that he can't go on one moment longer. And he describes for us in verses 1 and 2 how he feels. And he tells us four things. In verse number one, he feels as if God has forgotten him. Do you see how he begins? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And notice carefully in the text, it is God's absence, not the absence of answers that David is lamenting. We often think the problem is a lack of answers, But David is lamenting this morning over the fact that he feels that he is missing the very presence of God. And when the Bible uses the language of God forgetting someone, it literally means that God no longer comes to a person's aid. And if you look carefully in verse number one, David cries out to God and he says, God, how long will you not come to my aid? Forever? Forever, God, will you forget me forever? Will you leave me in this condition forever? Is my circumstances ever going to change? And you can see, friends, that David was emotionally crushed because of the weight of his pain. And he had convinced himself that God had forgotten him. You've been there. You've wondered the same things that David is wondering. He just had the courage to write them down so we could read them. But let me ask you a question this morning. 
Can God really forget? Can omniscience fail? Well, the prophet Isaiah reminds us that it is impossible for God to forget one of his children. Listen to Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16. And get this picture in your mind that Isaiah is describing for us of God and his care for his people. And Isaiah says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Just as a mother will never forget her child, God will never forget one of his children. He has engraved every single one of them on the palms of his hands. And yet at the height of his despair, David has convinced himself that God has forgotten him. But notice secondly in verse number one that David feels that God is hiding from him. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? To hide one's face in biblical language is to withdraw favor. And so David is saying, not only has God forgotten me, not only has God withheld his aid from me, God has withdrawn his favor. David no longer sensed the presence of God or the power of God or God's care over his life. But Charles Spurgeon reminds us succinctly this morning that a hidden face from God is no sign of a forgetful heart. And yet David, in his pain has convinced himself that God has forgotten him and that God is hiding from him. And then in verse number two, David says thirdly that he feels as if God has abandoned him. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Now notice what happens in verse number two. In his pain, David has turned away from talking to God, and he's turned inwardly. He's completely focused on himself in this third question. He is in such deep inner turmoil that he now doubts God's promises, and he's actually suggesting that God can no longer be trusted. That's why one commentator said, when God seems absent, Satan seems so near. And this is how David feels. He feels that he is utterly abandoned by God. And now, just like you and I do in our pain, when we're crying out how long, David takes matters into his own hands. Do you see what he says in verse number two? How long will I take counsel in my soul? That phrase, take counsel, literally means to plan. He is saying that in his pain, David does what we do. He began to make his own escape route for his troubles. He was tired of waiting on God. He was tired of asking him why and how long. And David was done waiting and he was going to fix the problem himself. But notice what he reveals about this plan. The counsels of his soul, 
They only added to his despair because he experienced sorrow in his heart. And notice what the text says. He experienced sorrow in his heart on a daily basis. That every day when he woke up, his sorrow was facing him. At the very moment that he got out of bed, and his sorrow never left him until he laid his head down at night on the pillow. And David is describing such serious emotional and spiritual pain. It is so intense in his life. The sadness is so real and so deep, it has completely immobilized him. He doesn't know what to do. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the Psalms, describes David's state and how it relates to us. And he says, when we no longer sense that God is blessing us, we tend to ruminate on our failures and get into an emotional funk. Have you ever been there? Just replaying the movie over and over in your mind of all of the pain, all of the failures, all of the heartaches. He says, and when our emotions take over, it is always hard to get back on a level course. This is because the best means of doing this, calm reflection and a review of past blessings, are all swept away. And we discover that we cannot settle ourselves long enough to even think. Abandoned. Forgotten. Hidden. And forth. David feels that God has allowed his enemy to triumph over him in verse 2. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Can you hear David's sense of injustice? He's essentially asking God, how could you allow evil to win? And his thoughts of defeat compound his sorrow. Now, you may have been with me in the first three And when you come to his fourth feeling, you say, I'm not sure about that. You know, I don't really think I have any enemies, or or at least any enemies like David was facing in this psalm. But if you're a Christian, I'll remind you this morning that you have a spiritual enemy that is worse than any human foe that you could ever imagine. Peter says that he is like a roaring lion walking around, prowling about, seeking whom he may swallow up and devour. Your enemy is the devil. And Martin Lloyd-Jones in his classic book, Spiritual Depression, describes the danger of this enemy. And he says the devil is the adversary of our souls. Listen to what he says, friends. This will help you this morning. He can use our temperaments Our personalities, the way we're wired, the way we think, the way we play the movie clips over and over in our heads, the devil can use our temperaments and our physical condition. He so deals with us that we allow our temperament to control and govern us instead of keeping temperament where it should be kept. There is no end to the ways the devil produces spiritual depression, and we must always bear him in mind, end quote. He is seeking those whom he may devour and destroy, and often he attacks right at the place of our temperament and our thinking. 
So don't you see through his how long questions? You can find yourself right there. I can find myself right there. We are like David in that we cannot understand why God delays. On the one hand, we know that God never forgets. But on the other hand, God has apparently forgotten us. God is supposed to be everywhere, but in critical moments, his location seems to not be found. God should be our counsel and our comfort, yet often we look inward to ourselves for our help. Our God is the Lord of hosts, and yet it seems as if the present enemy is winning victoriously over our lives. You and I are just like David in his pain. And it's a reminder this morning that while we have to be honest with our emotions and our feelings, we must remember that our hearts are deceptive and undependable. And we must, like David, take our emotions and our feelings and our thinking and cry out to God in our pain. And so I want to help us think about how we can apply these first two verses this morning. And I have two application points for you. Here's the first one. As we read and study the Psalms, it's important to allow our hearts to feel the emotion of the text. The Psalms are written in a different type of language than other genres of Scripture. This is poetry, and poetry is meant to make us feel something. And so when we come to the Psalms, it's not just enough to understand the meaning of the text. We must feel the emotion that is in the text. And we must allow the emotion to capture us. And so I'll ask you this morning, do you feel the emotion of David in these first two verses? David is teaching you and me how to lament. He is teaching us how to cry out to God in a biblical way in our pain with boldness and honesty. He is teaching us that instead of turning away from God in our pain, we should turn to God and express all of our pain and all of our emotions and bring all of our questions to Him. After all, friends, God already knows everything that you're think thinking and feeling. You're not hiding any of that from him. And so if he already knows it, you might as well go ahead and take it to him and leave it at his throne of mercy and grace. He is completely capable of handling your cries and your pain and your hurt. And so will you learn to let David teach you to lament? Application number two. These verses remind us that it was the length of the test that defeated David. And that is often what defeats us. But we need to remember this morning that God not only de designs the depth of our trials, He also designs the duration of our trials. And you and I can be sure that He will not leave us in the furnace of affliction one minute longer than we can endure. His grace and His mercy are sufficient and enough. So we not only see David's pain in this psalm, secondly, we see David's prayer in verses 3 and 4. 
And he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Now look carefully at the text. After everything that David has voiced in verses 1 and 2, doesn't it seem odd to you that David would respond the way he does in verses 3 and 4? How odd of David, who is lamenting and complaining that God has forgotten him, that God is hiding from him, that God has abandoned him, that God has allowed evil to triumph over good. And now in verses 3 and 4, he's going right back to God and he's praying to him? How does this make sense? Well, I'll quote Dale Ralph Davis again who I found very helpful on this point. And I think you will too. Listen carefully to what he says. You pray and pray, and God does not pay attention. He hides his face, you say. You plead and cry, and there is no relief. So what do you do? You go right on praying, of course. To whom? To the God who has not heard you. Is there any other? This is lousy logic, but excellent faith. You are convinced that Yahweh is forgetting you and hiding his face from you in your misery. And the next thing you do is cry out to God and say, look, answer me, Yahweh, you are my God. This seems senseless. You bemoan a God who's not paying attention to you. And then in the next breath, you nevertheless plead for him to pay attention It may not seem rational, he writes, but it is revealing. Strictly speaking, there may be times when faith does not have its reasons, but it does have its reactions. And he says, I call this the instinct of faith. Even when Yahweh seems to turn a deaf ear to us as believers, we will simply keep coming back to him. It is a spiritual knee-jerk reaction. And sometimes our instincts are very revealing and comforting. So David teaches us, what do you do when you go to a God whom you feel has no longer listened to you? You go back to him again and you pray. And I want you to note carefully in this psalm that verses 3 and 4 are the turning point. David moves from the path of despair to the path of deliverance through prayer. It is the vehicle of prayer that elevates David's thoughts from himself to God. That's why Spurgeon said the mercy seat is the life of hope and it is the death of despair. And it's why Matthew Henry says days of trouble must always be days of prayer. Now, notice in the text in verses 3 and 4 that David's prayer is very personal. He uses the word my four times in the text. And right there in the midst of verse 3, after David has cried out and said, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? He cries out, O Lord, my God. It is a declaration of his dependence and prayer upon God and in his prayer 
he makes three requests to the Lord. Do you see it there in the text? He says, first of all, consider me. The word consider means to look or to gaze intently at or into someone. It is to put aside all distractions. It's what your children do to you when you're on the phone and they come to you and they grab the phone up out of your hand and tell you to put that down and look at them. Gaze. Look intently. And so David is crying out to God and he says, God, if you will just put aside whatever is distracting you, and if you will just look once again in my direction, I will no longer feel as if you've forgotten me. I will no longer feel as if you're hiding from me. Oh God, would you, my God, consider me? Would you think of me? In David's mind, one look from God would restore all of God's blessing and favor to his life. Secondly, he says, and answer me. He cries out to God and says, don't just look at me, but answer me. Because if you will answer me, I won't have to make my own plans and take my own sorrowful counsel into my soul any longer. I'll have your word and your truth and your plan and your purpose. Oh God, won't you answer me? And then thirdly, he prays that God would light up his eyes. The phrase light up, some translations use it in lighten. It literally translates to cause to shine. And what David is praying in this request is he is asking God to give him divine wisdom and understanding so that he would see his pain and his suffering and his circumstances from God's perspective, not his own human perspective. It's also a prayer for emotional and physical and spiritual vitality and strength. It is a very unique phrase. It's not used often in Scripture there's another occasion in where something similar is used. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 27. When Jonathan, King Saul's son, was going through a stretch of woods while he was in pursuit of the Philistines. And he stumbled upon honey. And the Bible says that he took some of the honey for himself and he ate it. And it brightened his countenance. It lit up his face. And what the text is teaching us is just as the honey gave a fresh surge of energy and vitality to Jonathan, so here in this psalm, David is asking God to restore him and to energize him and to refresh him physically and spiritually and emotionally. And then notice what he does at the end of this prayer, at the end of verse 3, and in verse 4, David doesn't just make his request to God. He ends his prayer by giving God three reasons why he should answer him. He says, answer me, lest I sleep the sleep of death. David believed that his trials were going to end his life. God, consider me, answer me, light up the countenance of my life. If you don't, I am going to die. Secondly, he says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. And David feared that he would not only lose his life, but that he would lose his honor and that he would be shamed. 
Because the enemy would be victorious over his life. And then thirdly, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David feared that God's glory would be diminished if God didn't answer him and come through for him. The word shaken that he used there means to waver and to stumble and to totter and to shake. And David says, God, if you don't answer me, if you don't come through for me, I'm going to waver, I'm going to stumble, I'm going to shake. And everyone around me, including my enemies, will believe that you are not powerful enough to save me. And your glory will be diminished. Because you've not come through for your people. So what do we learn from his prayer? Well, we learn, first of all, that when you are discouraged in your soul, your first response should be prayer, not last. That when the storms of life threaten you, your first response should be to turn to God and to pour your heart out to him. And I wonder this morning if that's what you do. If you do turn to God, if you do pour your heart out to him. If you're a Christian and it feels like God has abandoned you, don't believe your heart. Like David, cry out and say, God, you are my God. And pray, knowing and believing that he knows, that he hears you, that he cares, and that he will respond in his perfect timing. That's what David learned. Secondly, did you notice how David prayed? David prayed with feeling, and David prayed with reasoning. That's why one author said, At the throne of grace, tears fall from your eyes, and arguments fall from your lips. Have you learned to pray that way? Have you learned to pray with feeling and emotion and with reasoning? Have you learned to remind God of his promises to you through his word? Have you learned to remind him in your prayers of his character and of his attributes and what he says he will do for you, his people? Or do you just pray with feeling? And David prayed with feeling, full emotions on display, and he prayed with complete reasoning, reminding God what was at stake, reminding God of what was true about him. God loves to hear those kind of prayers. But David doesn't just teach us this way of praying. Like David, Jesus, the very Son of God, knew what it was like to endure the threefold sorrow of separation from God, the loneliness of a troubled soul, and the apparent triumph of a ruthless enemy. He endured the sorrow of suffering. He endured the shameful cross so that he could rescue people like you and me from our sins. And just like David, Jesus strengthened his heart through prayers of surrender in the midst of a painful and sorrowful heart. And he entrusted himself to his father's sovereign care. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 describes Jesus' prayer life this way. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus prayed the way David prayed. And if David prayed that way and Jesus prayed that way, I think it stands to reason 
that you and I should learn to pray that way as well. We need to learn to follow Jesus' example and cry out to the only one in complete honesty with feeling and reason. Cry out to the only one who can save us from our earthly trials and the only one who can save our souls from hell. Jesus is always the answer to our suffering, friends. When we not only see David's pain and David's prayer, finally, we see David's praise in verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now notice carefully in the text. There is not one thing in the text to indicate that David's circumstances have changed. Not one. He is still surrounded by his enemies. He is still in pain. So what changed? David's heart. David changed. And the text doesn't tell us how long it took David to get from verse 1 to verses 5 and 6. But what we do know is this, friends. Lament takes time. It cannot be rushed. And notice how David responds in praise at the beginning of verse 5. The very first word in the verse is the word but. And it is a transition word and it indicates a transition from David's fear to his faith. From questioning God to claiming the promises of God. And notice he uses the word I all through the text. It is emphatic. It is passionate. David is not casually saying these words in verses 5 and 6. He is speaking with passion. He is speaking with conviction. But I, notice what he says next, have trusted. It indicates that there was a certain point in his pain. There was a certain point in his circumstances that David stopped relying on himself and he started once again trusting in his Lord. And he says, I have trusted and it literally means I will continue to keep on trusting my God. And so what's happening here? What's the change? His prayer. Through prayer, David stopped looking at himself in his circumstances, and he started looking to God and his character. And notice what he meditated on about God. He says that he has unwavering confidence in God's steadfast love in verse number five. What is God's steadfast love? Well, in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, God described himself to Moses as a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But what is so amazing about this passage is not God's self-disclosure. It's when his self-disclosure was made. Exodus 34 comes up on the heels of the event of Exodus 32, where Moses was up on the mountain communing with God and God was giving his law to his servant. And while Moses was communing with God, the people of God had made a golden calf and they began to worship in idolatry, saying this calf is the God who brought us out of slavery in Egypt. 
they broke their covenant with God. And on the heels of breaking that covenant with God and partaking in idolatry, God comes back to his servant and he says, Moses, tell the people that I am a God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. You may be faithless, but I am faithful. You may have broken your covenant with me. Listen, but I will never break my covenant with you. I abound in steadfast love. This steadfast love is who God is in his nature It is a love that refuses to ever let go. It has a sustaining, assuring element about it. It is loyal love. It is faithful love, some translations say. It is unfailing love, some translations say. It is the dependable kindness of God. And do you see, friends, what David is doing in his pain He moves to prayer, and through prayer, he is reminded of God's dependability, of God's faithfulness, of God's abounding love and mercy and grace for him. And he's strengthened. He's renewed. Oh, maybe you can relate to Psalm 94, 18. Listen to the psalmist in this verse. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Have you ever been there feeling like you're take one more step and you're going to fall over the cliff? And the psalmist's testimony is in that moment, in that moment, God's steadfast love will never fail you. He'll hold you up. He's loyal to you. Remember, you're written on the palms of his very hands. How could he ever forget you? Or how about Psalm 23, 6? You know this one. Surely goodness and mercy, the word mercy there, is translated the same way as steadfast love here, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And if you've heard me teach about this verse, you know that some people refer to grace and mercy or grace and steadfast love as God's sheepdogs that run and chase after the sheep in his flock. And keep them on the right path. And notice what David is saying. He's saying, God, I remember. I'm reminded through prayer of your steadfast love. And that when I wake up every morning, as soon as my feet hit the floor, your grace and your abounding steadfast love are chasing after me. They're pursuing me no matter what I'm going through, no matter where I find myself, no matter how dark, no matter how deep, no matter how wide. Your grace and your love are chasing me and pursuing me. And they'll do it all the days of my life till I get to heaven with you. That's what David remembered. That's why Warren Wiersbe said, we don't live on explanations. We live on God's promises because his promises are unchanging just like his character. And that's what David has done. He is resting in his pain and in his circumstances on the unchanging character of God, the abounding, abiding, steadfast love of God. And notice what it causes him to do. It causes him to move from a state of depression to a state of delight in God's 
salvation. And when he talks about God's salvation, he's speaking in totality, complete well-being. He's not speaking just of the forgiveness of his sins. He's speaking of comfort for his heart, the quieting of his mind. Oh, don't you need that when you're in pain? Don't you need that when you're suffering for your mind to quiet down and be still? The healing of his body, his complete safety and his perfect peace when David has confidence in God's salvation, he's speaking of all of these things. That he is confident that God will save him in this way completely and thoroughly. And then notice what he does. In verse 6, his confidence in God's love and his confidence in God's salvation lead him to sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with him. That word bountifully means the goodness of God. David is so confident in God's love. He's so confident in God's salvation that his whole thinking, his whole feeling has changed. And where in his darkness and in his depression, all he could see was his pain. He could never see anything good coming from God's hand. Now all he can do is look back on his life and even in his pain say, God's been good to me. And all he can do is look forward to what's ahead in his life and say, God will be good to me in the future. God has dealt bountifully in complete goodness to his servant That's why Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Oh, he will deal bountifully with you, friend. He will do it. He will pour his goodness out on you. One writer said, no matter how successful the enemy appears to be, You can trust the Lord. You can rejoice in the Lord. You can sing to the Lord and know that he deals bountifully with you. Oh, if you learn nothing else from the Psalms, friends, learn to sing. Learn to sing to your God. Learn to sing to your deliverer. You say, I don't sing. Well, you should. You should sing as passionate and as loud as you do when you're watching the ball game, sir. Because in those moments, listen to me, you're teaching your family, you're teaching your children what's important to you. And if you will scream and cheer and holler and make a fool out of yourself watching sports and come to church and not utter one note to the God you say who has redeemed you, there is a disconnect in your life. And you're teaching your kids and your family by way of your attitude and your actions what's really important. You should sing like you've never sung before to the Lord because you have experienced His goodness. You're alive today, friend. That's good enough. There's a reason to sing just in that. 
You're with your church family this morning, gathered around the Word of God. There's a reason to sing just in that. You're just not looking hard enough to find a reason to sing, or you're being too prideful and stubborn. Vance Havner used to say, we go to ball games and we act like wild Indians and we come to church and we act like wooden ones. We're dead because there's a disconnect between what God is doing in our heart and our life and our worship. And the Psalms are teaching you, learn to sing. That's why I encourage us to be a singing church. The world has nothing to sing about, friends. And they will gather in the pouring rain and they will sing all kinds of secular songs that mean nothing to the top of their lungs. And maybe you do that too. When we gather together, we've got something to sing about. We've got something to shout about. And we should allow the psalms to take root in our lives like David did so that we sing a song to the Lord. And we sing the goodness of this God and all that he has done in our lives. Well, through this psalm, we're taught the importance of having a theology of waiting. That during prolonged seasons of difficulty, God invites us to set our trouble and our weariness before him while we wait for him to act. Friends, never forget he welcomes your cries for relief. Never forget he welcomes your prayers of trust. Never forget he welcomes your declarations of his character. And never forget, never forget he welcomes your songs. He loves to hear you sing even when you sing the wrong note. So learn to wait upon him. Learn to lean into him. And learn to trust him. And remember that God is more interested in changing your character than he is in changing your circumstances. And that often our circumstances don't change because he's not finished dealing with our character. And you say, well, how do I know I've learned the lesson of waiting on God? Here's how you know. You can say what David said when he ended this psalm. The Lord has dealt bountifully with me. That's how you know you've learned the lesson. Now, I know that all of us at one point or another in this psalm can relate to David. And I know some of the stories that are represented in this room this morning. I prayed specifically for those stories before preaching this sermon today. And so I wrote my conclusion word for word, and I'm just going to read it because I want to say it exactly the way I wrote it. I want you to listen carefully to it. If you're suffering and feel as if God has abandoned you, if you've asked God how long for the 100th time and you find yourself like a wind-blown leaf, you are not alone. You are walking a well-worn path of godly men and women who have traveled before you. I cannot tell you when the darkness will lift. But I can tell you with certainty that just as surely as God illuminated David's eyes and just as surely as God raised his son from the dead, so too God will lift the curtain of depression and despair surrounding you. And when he does, you will find that you have been in the palm of his hand the whole time. 
Until then, friend, cry out to God in prayer, knowing that his steadfast love is chasing after you all the days of your life. Let's pray.